Welcome to Seahawks Man to Man podcast, powered by The Athletic. Shout out to the company. My name is Michael Sean Dugar. I'm here with my co-host, Christopher Kidd. Make sure you follow us both up on The Tweet Machine, and make sure you tell Chris that it is called The Tweet Machine in order to get Chris a blue check on said Tweet Machine. Chris, holla at him. What is up, everybody? It's your boy, Christopher Kidd. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at CKIDD206. And again, that's CKID206. I'm just going to keep calling it Twitter, man. And you'll keep not having a, a blue check. <laughs> uh, we have a special guest uh, on the line, uh, one of the people uh, in the NFL world who does a great job combining the numbers with the tape, with just the eye test. Uh, love love reading his stuff. Love having him on the show. He writes for USA Today. We have Doug Farrar. Doug, what up, baby? How's it going, guys? Yeah, I'm going to call it the Twitter machine, too, because when I was the Bleacher Report, I was blue check, and when I moved to USAT, I somehow lost it. <laughs> oh, man. I, didn't, I forgot. So I, I had it, it. So it's like one of those things where if you never have it at all, is it more painful? I, I don't know. Chris and I will have to discuss that. <laughs> Yo, I didn't know they was out here rescinding the blue checks. That's something. Is it, is it, is it better to have loved and lost than never to have the blue check at all? I do not know. Oh man! As someone who's obviously didn't have blue check when I started Twitter, to now have one, if I was to lose it, I w- that would hurt. That would sting. It that, it, it does. Oh. It frequently does. Oh but, man! You know, I just I I gotta move on. I got I gotta live my life, man. I, I you know. <laughs> oh man! Now I'm depressed. Anyway, let's keep going. All right, let's 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 dive into one of the the more topical. Um, discussions around the NFL it like combines the Seahawks with the NFL at large with like the national unrest uh, stemming from the the protests with police brutality uh, across the nation Colin Kaepernick uh Doug you've been watching you've watched Colin Kaepernick his whole career and I know you uh you dove into him a lot like post protest right or like when he was being uh blackballed I mean still is uh but you you took you took a deep deep dive uh into him before we get into that, though, what did you, what was your kind of reaction to hearing like Pete Carroll's comments, both on the podcast with Steve Kerr and Greg Popovich, um, and then in his Zoom call with us, where he expressed a lot of regret for not signing Kaepernick when they uh, brought him in in 2017? Kind of, what was your read on what Pete had to say about it in hindsight? Yeah, I, I go way back with with. I mean, I I don't know him well as a person. I've talked to him a few times. Um, but I go. I started studying Chris Salt's pistol offense in like 2008. Um, when I back with Football Outsiders, because um, the Chiefs had lost like their top two quarterbacks, and Larry Johnson was suspended, and they were you know rolling 40 points under rule with pistol. So I started looking into that, and Kaepernick was Alt's quarterback at the time. Uh, when I went to the Senior Bowl, uh, Ka- Kaepernick Senior Bowl, I wound up talking to him for like 30 minutes because you know the media in Mobile. I don't know if either of you guys have ever been there. They put the media on this big battleship, and all the players are just walking around. It's really interesting. And so I was familiar with him, so I was asking all these questions about the pistol. Um, I had no idea he was politically motivated in, in any way whatsoever. Um, and at the time, nor was I, because you know the. America wasn't going straight down the tubes, at least not to this degree. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, he, the Niners get him. Uh, I remember being in the Seahawks press box when the Niners were playing the Rams. And I saw Alex Smith's concussion on TV and they brought Kaepernick in. And the rest was kind of history there. So I, I, w- I had been aware of, I've been aware of Colin for what, 13 years now? Mm. Uh, back when he was in, at Nevada and I, I saw, you know, uh, looking at him just as a player, like, wow, this is really interesting because 
you know, uh, how many guys have, you know, passed for 10,000 yards and rushed for 3,000 in their collegiate careers? You can count them on one hand, and that's what he did. Um, you know, so I, and when I wrote my book, The Genius of Desperation, a lot of it was about, the, the entire last chapter was mostly about transitioning college quarterbacks and quote-unquote college offenses to the pros. And Kaepernick was a big part of that. Basically, he eliminated man coverage against the Niners because every time your man cornerbacks have to turn to run, well, Collins like, ooh, look, Elaine, I'm going to run for 57 yards and embarrass your defense. <laughs> so when I, when I went back after the fact and after the blackballing, and that's what we can call it because that's what it is, um, you know, I, I had a pretty decent history of analyzing him, and I would go back and go, okay, because I want to make it clear. I mean, all the stuff I've said about Kaepernick and what happened to him and how disgraceful it is, I've, I've never maintained that he's a top-five quarterback. He's got a lot to learn, <laughs> and that's true of most quarterbacks. Not everyone can be Russell Wilson slash Drew Brees slash Aaron Rodgers slash Tom Brady, but Kaepernick is, at any given time, in my opinion, one of the top 25 quarterbacks in the NFL. It's shameful that he's not in the league. As far as what Pete said and other coaches have said and the NFL has said, and everyone's saying, oh, it's, you know, this is the time the dialogue has changed with Colin Kaepernick. And I agree the dialogue has changed. Here's how I think the dialogue has actually changed. Before, nobody was talking about Kaepernick on the record. And you had guys like Mike Freeman who knew what questions to ask and would get from GMs and executives you know, he's a, an SOB. Basically all the things that Trump said about him. He is, I, there was one executive who to Mike Freeman compared him to Ray Carew. I mean, just chew on that for a second. Um, the dialogue was, we are done with him. The dialogue was, you know, they on his player page, they said he was retired a few weeks ago, and then they had to change it. The dialogue now is, we need to reach out to Colin. We need to, you know, the league would be better with Colin in it. We regret having done to Colin what we did. And what I've said and what I've written is you're not going to have a 32-team round robin in which every somebody from every team is going to say this, and Kaepernick will never remain on. He, he will remain on side. He will never play for another NFL team again. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen for all the wrong reasons but it's not going to happen. I just don't see it. Even even with uh like you said the shift, maybe one team gives them a gives them a shot to be on the try to be on the right side of history, change their legacy or or anything like that. I think you've seen in the last few years that there are teams who would rather miss the playoffs than sign him. I don't think that changes. I, I you know, I think I think the public statement and the public face has to be different now because, you know, Roger Goodell is woke. Well, Roger Goodell was, is quote-unquote woke because a bunch of people in his office put out the I could be George Floyd video basically behind his back and without his knowledge and then came to him with it and said, you'd better say something because we already have. Um, everything that's happened in the last few weeks doesn't change the fact that Seven different NFL owners contributed at least one million dollars to Donald Trump in 2016. Doesn't contribute. It doesn't change the fact that there are still a lot of people in the league who found what he did to be absolutely unforgivable. 
I don't think that changes. And I, you know, it's like with Kurt Flood trying to fan the fires of free agency, taking it all the way to the Supreme Court in the early 70s. Well, Kurt, you know, he had a cup of coffee with the A's, and by then his, his physical tools were kind of gone, unfortunately. But there was, you know, there's a drumbeat around the league, like, this isn't going to happen. And I firmly believe that what you're going to hear now is, yes, he should be in the league. Yes, it's unfortunate what happened. Um, you know, people will assign different levels of responsibility to themselves. Um, I, I think in the, in the grand scheme of things, comparatively, Pete has done a pretty good job of that, as, as is his want. I think he's a really decent guy. But I don't see any team edging on the side of history here. I just don't. And it's, it's, it's shameful. I, I, I can't. I don't. I mean, I don't know what else to say about it <laughs> because he should be in the league and he never will be again. And it's for all the wrong reasons. I just, I don't see it happening. You're going to get a lot of lip service about it. I don't think. Well, I shouldn't say I don't think because Trey Boston is one of the best free safeties in the NFL and has been for the last five years. Comes out that he wanted to protest in 2016. And all of a sudden, he mysteriously gets a series of one-year deals for super low-ball money. And, you know, Junior Gallet has said he was blacklisted for it. Eric Reed uh, was in Collins' collusion suit and, and won along with him. And you have to factor in the, the collusion suit. The NFL settled that rather than go to discovery. So not only has he protested in ways that the NFL finds utterly distasteful, but he took legal action and essentially won. So, I mean, when you, when you factor all that in, the NFL knows it's on a powdery thing. The NFL knows it must say all the right things about Colin Kaepernick. I think it's just as sure and unfortunate. The NFL knows he will never play in the NFL again. This is maybe an un, unrelated, but kind of related question. You, you obviously saw the, the player video, Michael Thomas and everyone put together kind of call, calling for action. And then you saw Goodell respond just in, in, in as long as you've been around the league, man, just how how surprised were you to see kind of Goodell? I don't want to say fold, but you know what I mean. Have to feel the need to have to respond. I mean, we got in twenty twenty, we got Roger Goodell on camera saying Black Lives Matter. As hollow as that may have felt, just to even see it was crazy. You know what I mean? Oh, I think that's surprising. I mean, if you go back to the most important commissioner in sports history was Pete Rozelle, and Pete Rozelle came from. P. Roosevelt ran PR for the Rams in the late 50s. So, the, the it, you know, the commissionership is a lot of things. Part of what it is is a PR position, and part of what it is is to take, you know, various stones and bullets for the owners. So when Goodell came out and said that, he was, you know, tapping his finger on the pulse of the nation. He was also, as, it, as, as the story has been told, by uh, two of your own people, Jordan and Lindsay, uh, that the people in the NFL's employ had kind of thrown up their hands and risked their jobs and said, screw it, we're going to do this anyway. Um, we're going to put out this video. So Goodell is many things, um, most of them, in my opinion, underwhelming, but he's not stupid. Um, I, I think... Given what's happened in the NFL through his tenure, it was a hollow gesture, uh, but I don't think it was surprising at all. Speaking of surprising, last year we had you on to discuss 
DK Metcalf and your story that had just come out right, I think right before training camp had started or during that time, it's titled Why Seahawks DK Metcalf is a better route runner than you think. And then Mike was able to dig up a nice little quote that I think fits exactly what DK did through his 2019 campaign as a rookie. You want someone who can create separation at the line of scrimmage, body defenders through the first parts of his routes and creates plays with a silly catch radius and the ability to create yards after the catch. And I would think all three of us agree that DK embodied that. What were, what were your thoughts on DK's rookie season and how do you expect him to react in year two? Well, I think, you know, he had the, he had the perfect, perfect physical tools for this particular offense. And you could argue that in some ways he kind of became, in my mind, kind of what they always wanted Jimmy Graham to be. Um, an ultimate separator in space, a guy who was going to be physical at the catch point, um, a guy who was going to literally and figuratively elevate when the ball was coming his way. And I think that's what he was. I think he, I think the route running thing was, you know, I don't want to go off on the spark guys, but come on, uh, a bad three cone doesn't, it, it tells you something, but it doesn't tell you a lot. You have to watch the tape. Um, and I was very intrigued by, I think it was his college receivers coach who was on with KJR saying, you didn't see the routes that we didn't have him run in games that we had him run in practice. And I watched, you know, you go back and watch, you know, the highlights, and it's one thing, you watch every play, and it was like, okay, he ran this perfect slant, but they ran the ball. Or he ran this perfect drag route, and the ball went somewhere else for whatever reason, so it wasn't a big play. Um, I, I think he showed development in his overall route awareness. I, it's a work in progress, but that's okay because the routes he runs, he does very well. And it is a heavy play action, balanced shot play offense, and he's perfect for that. So it's not like trading your starting center in a first-round pick for Jimmy Graham and asking to block. <laughs> they, know what, they know what they need to do to maximize Metcalf's attributes, which are, you know, he big, he fast, he jump high, let's go. And that's, you know, you can take a couple routes with that at the NFL level and you can you can whoop some ass, and that's what he did. So I, I would imagine in 2020 and beyond, uh, he stays healthy, the offense stays the same, for better or worse. <laughs> and I'm sure you guys have written a lot about both. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Um you know, he, he, he is an ideal, especially with Lockett, because Lockett is just that precision. He's the precision guy. He was, you know, even in, even in college, I would watch him and think, gosh, this guy just has it. He's kind of that Bobby Ingram style. Um, DK is more, he's just a series of explosions downfield, and I, I would just expect that to keep going. I hear you on that. You also look at that 2019 draft class, and there's a lot of talent in there. You have A.J. Brown with the Titans, Terry McLaurin with the Washington football team, Debo Samuel, Niners, Darius Slayton, Giants, and Deontay Johnson with the Steelers. Where do you, where would you put D.K. in that conversation? Is he a top guy with A.J. Brown and Terry and Debo? Where do you, where do you rank him? It seems like Debo. I mean, Debo is probably the most fascinating guy because. I don't know if he catches 10 passes if Kyle Shanahan doesn't get him because Kyle, you know, Kyle knows how to use everybody. So, you know, Debo became kind of this hybrid guy. And I swear to God, he was, 
I'm watching the Super Bowl from the press box, and I'm like, at, at halftime, I'm thinking, he's the MVP. He's the most valuable player of this game if the Niners win. Um, so that's how much he improved. You know, Brown, obviously great. I think McLaurin has a really good chance to be that group's best receiver if he can ever find a functional quarterback, which may be a problem for him, unfortunately. Um, you know, I wasn't a fan of Haskins before the, the Ohio State tape. Jamie kind of, ooh, I don't know. And year one at, with the Washington football team didn't do much for me either, but we'll see. Um, you know, I think Metcalf is... He may never be the most practiced route runner, and you know he may be a guy who never catches 80, 90 balls. That that may be Lockett in this offense. But if he catches 40, like 12 of them will be for touchdowns. Mm. And I think everyone in Seattle will be okay with that because they're not going to throw the ball 600 times anyway. We know this. Uh, yeah, no, no, they are not. Although that would be fun. It just would be so yeah. fun to see uh, an Andy Reid-like off. Just, you know how you can, like uh, – not take your not take your kid to work type of day, but like let's say just Pete Carroll and Andy Reid just switched for like a couple weeks, man, just to see Russ with Tyler and DK. Shoot, honestly, even if Philip Dorsett, like that would can we Doug, can you like imagine yeah. a column with that? Like it doesn't even have to happen. Can you just like make it up real quick and put it on USA Today? Because I, <laughs> I would I would really just enjoy well, thinking about you it. You know, it yeah, you could take like Watkins and maybe give him the locket role. I think. I think Kelsey, I think Matt Gaff could do a lot of what Kelsey does. What Seattle wouldn't have, and this isn't Dorsett. Dorsett's a fast guy, but Tyree Gill is on a completely different planet. Um, I don't think, I mean, you go back to the Deshaun Jackson days. Andy's offense, which is West Coast slash vertical, it doesn't work without the fast guy who can just demolish one of your safeties on every play. Um, so if we were to take Seattle's personnel and give him Andy's offense, uh, we'd have to give them Tyree Kill, or we'd have to give them an equivalent, which there isn't. So that'd be tough. Yeah, no, there is. There's only one Tyree Kill. That dude is, man. That guy's that guy's unfair. Scary. Um, uh, Scary. Another like great line from your DK column last year. Before we move on, is uh, if this guy is is seriously limited as a route runner, I certainly didn't see it, and I was looking for it. And I was like, whew. Yep. Man, that was. No, I was because and. It's interesting that the most debited, like, I, I've, I've got, I've been watching college players for 15, 16 years, hashtag old. Um, <laughs> and the guys, the guys who are most debited in the court of public opinion tend to be the guys I watch the most because I'm looking for it. And sometimes I see it and sometimes I don't. And there are guys who, I remember Quentin Coples when I watched Tuesday, I think the Jets took him like 10 years ago when he didn't do much of anything. And that was kind of the opposite where I heard so many good things and I'm watching tape going, man, I don't get it. I don't know what he's, because he just looked like a, a kind of a log. I, just, I mean, honestly, and if we want to get into LJ Collier, I kind of thought the same thing. Like, well, he's slow, but he makes up for it by being exceedingly stiff. Uh, not sure what we're doing here. <laughs> um, so anyway, with Matt, with Matt Jeff, I was looking for it. I was like, okay, if he just runs around like baby Huey and maybe catches the ball because he's bigger than the cornerback, I'm like, no, 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 wait a minute. You're not seeing the routes that he runs that are not caught. And then I, you know, I got on to what his receivers coach in college said, and I thought, okay. And then I got to see him, you know, in, 
mini camp 10 feet away from me and I'm going, yeah, this is not a problem. I was looking for it and it wasn't a problem. What do you know? Doug was on to something. I appreciated that. Kyle. I was on May, <laughs> it was on, it was on May 5th. Once in, a while, once in a while, like every two or three years, I get it right. Uh, I'm gonna plug another one of your pieces, Doug. This is gonna be a theme of the whole your whole guest spot here. Um, this one <laughs> is about quarterbacks. It is the best quarterbacks for every type of throw? And I loved I loved the concept. For as soon as I saw the headline, I was like, "Yo, this is this is a really good idea." And I really just was mostly surprised how many times Ryan Tannehill popped up. I was like, "Jesus, was he like? Should he have won MVP? What the hell?" Um, but he uh, he actually was that good. It which he was is just crazy. By play action and he was and the scheme, but he really was that good. Which like Ryan Tannehill, like it just it blows my mind. I know. I want to. It, it's like all of a sudden, warrant put out appetite for destruction. You're like, what? I want to. I want to use the just that research you did, obviously for that piece to kind of central the conversation about Russ for a little bit here. You know, this year, this off season, before we got all uh, pandemic-y up in this place, pandemic-y and protesty, um, there uh-huh. was like rumblings you could tell either coming from russ or his camp like russ is russ is upset you can tell you know not just the inability to like cook as it's kind of been described here in seattle just like that he's not mentioned with that dude you know outside of maybe colin coward's show he's not the love is not there nationally um (laughs) it's just it's just it's just not there you could tell russ feels that people in his camp feel it you know but you know quarterbacks so if you had to put Russ, you know, up there with those dudes, the Mahomes or whoever else, where how would you do so? Like what where where's Russ in like the quarterback tiers? Well, and it's interesting because I'm looking at DVOA right now, uh quarterback DVOA in twenty nineteen and see if you can guess the theme here. Dak's number one, Mahomes is number two, Russ is number four, Lamar Jackson is number five. Four of the top five quarterbacks in DVOA last year were black. Uh, I dare say that's never happened before. The NFL is changing in a lot of ways. Um, you know, it, it's so uh, it's it's not that the advent of the new black quarterback changes Russ's mind about it, or maybe it does. I don't know, but I, I think what you know, Dak and Patrick and, and certainly Lamar have proven is that there are a lot of different ways to do this. And the thing about Russell Wilson is that he can do them in all of those ways, probably in a package that doesn't otherwise exist in the NFL. I think Mahomes is the closest. Um, Dak doesn't run that way. Lamar, boy, did he, he develop. But I think the Tennessee loss in the playoffs showed as one would expect, um, you know, there's some development to be done as a passer, and that's perfectly fine. Um, he did everything else at a just blistering level, and you know, the coaches got around him, and it, it all worked out. But the fact that Russell Wilson isn't considered a top three quarterback at, at this point by anyone uh, is preposterous. I mean, he's He's never had a good offensive line. His receivers have been iffy at best. Um, he hasn't had a consistent running back since about, what, 2015, 16? Whenever Marshawn was still here on top of his game? Maybe it was the last Super Bowl year. I don't know. I, I'm, I don't have Marshawn's stats in front of me, but, you know, Carson keeps getting hurt. The other guys can really work out. Um, 
he has done, in my opinion, he's done more with less than any quarterback in the last five years, mm. for, for sure. And he's working with, you know, kind of de-evolutionary offensive coordinators and a head coach who wants to do 50-50 run pass and really won't variate from that, no matter how interesting other people's offenses have become. The fact that he's able to do that, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost an Archie Manning story, except that, except that Archie Manning actually gets to go to Super Bowls in this case. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, 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 I can you know, slice and dice it for you. Um, I can tell you he's great at this throw and that throw. I think he's the best, one of the two or three best uh, deep shot quarterbacks off play action. Um, he is most certainly one of the best quarterbacks um, as far as running out of the pocket, scoring your shoulders, you know, getting that done with accuracy and consistency. Um, you know, I, I, I watch guys like Josh Allen, and I, I think, and Justin Herbert also, um, who I really, I didn't get that one either. Um, some guys make the easy throws look hard and the hard throws look easy. Russell makes everything look easy. And that, that's a very rare trait for a position that is this impossibly hard to excel at and, and put together all the attributes. Yeah, he's a top three guy. He has been for the last five years. I, I expect he stays healthy. He's going to continue to do that. And Will he be Patrick Mahomes? No, he's never going to throw for 50 touchdowns. He's never going to be you know, the NFL's most valuable player. That Because that's not what this system is. It would take a different head coach for that to happen. Um, maybe in the last few years of his career that does happen. Maybe some Andy, hey, maybe Eric the Enemy, well, here, here's one for you. How about Eric the Enemy race, with, 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 uh, replaces Pete Carroll in two or three years? Woo! I love it. That's put, put that put that hat on for a second, and then maybe you get that uh, transfer from Seattle to KC that you were talking about. Who knows? You know the MVP thing is interesting with Russ because I think that's been you know a point of this like a point of discussion. It's because he's never received a vote, which I get because you got to vote for who you know who you think should win, and there's never been a year where Russ should have been the number one number one guy. You just mentioned, you know, it probably won't happen in Seattle just because the limitation is placed upon Russ within the confines of the offense. If it if if there was gonna be an MVP season for us, you know, under Pete Carroll, what what would have to what what would that even look like, do you think? Yeah, he's thrown for over four thousand yards three times. He's let off the most he has is forty two nineteen. Uh the most touchdowns 34. He led the league with 34 touchdowns in 2017 when they had 11 picks. Um, you know, you look at his rushing, the most he's ever had is 849 in, in 2014, the last Super Bowl year. I think to, to win MVP, he'd have to get around, I mean, I think he could do 4,500 yards, but it would have to be somewhere in the mid 40s for his touchdowns, and he'd probably have to run for anywhere from five to 800 yards. I, that's not impossible. But it's probably impossible in the offense that Pete Carroll wants and that, you know, his various offensive coordinators have run. I, I just don't see that happening. Um, unless he has a touchdown percentage that is like by far the highest all time in NFL history, uh, he's going to have to wait. He's going to have to wait for the next coach. And you know, I, I I admire Pete Carroll as a coach and a person. I've covered him for ten years. Uh, I have 
very few problems with Pete. But the offense thing, and this is traditional of defensive coaches. I mean, defensive coaches, defensive head coaches view offense as something they need to control. That the the error rate needs to be really low. Mm-hmm. The explosive plays are fine, but we will we will see the explosive plays and the consistently explosive offense and motion and all those things. Um, all the things that the Kyle Shanahan's and Andy Reid are good at. I mean, we admire it, but our primary goal is to stop it because Pete Carroll is probably the outside of Bill Belichick the preeminent defensive coach of his generation. Certainly the best secondary coach of his generation. Um, that's been proven out. But he is a defensive head coach. And through time, for the most part, defensive head coaches view offense as something that needs to be controlled as opposed to something that needs to be expanded. If Russell's ever going to break through that, it's going to have to be with a different head coach. And I'm not advocating for that at all. So let's not make it the poll quote, but that's what's <laughs> going to have to happen. Uh, wow. Well, there's a play from... Um... Uh, let's see, I think it's the Vikings game on Monday Night Football in 2018. I think it's a big run. Russ runs for like 40 yards or something like that. I don't think he's going to uh-huh. end up running for 800 because Russ looked a little heavy uh, on that run. If you guys listening right now, the, <laughs> hey, I think he ends up outrunning like Everson Griffin or somebody, somebody gives up on the play because they have a big dude. But I remember thinking, damn, did Russ put on? Because <laughs> it don't look that don't look that fast anymore. But I would love to see him get 800 yeah. yards on the ground, yeah. that is. Yeah, I mean, uh, he, you know, he, he may be one of those guys who never gets an MVP vote and goes to the Hall of Fame. That'd be interesting to see, like, like figure out through pro football reference if that ever happened. Nobody gets an MVP vote through their entire careers and they still make the Hall of Fame. That'd be fascinating. Before we continue our discussion with Doug, let's pay some quick bills. People ask, Chris, why do you love Hawthorne and why should I even give it a try? Well, for starters, it's key to smell good. That's important. And getting Hawthorne cologne is actually quite simple. And, for example, it's risk-free with free shipping and free returns. And Deion Sanders, he said it best, right? If you look good, you feel good. If you feel good, you play good. If you play good, they pay good. He forgot one thing. If you smell good, if you smell good, well, check out Hawthorne at Hawthorne.co. That's Hawthorne with an E and .co, not .com. Hawthorne.co, and use my promo code ATHLETIC to get 10% off your first purchase. That's Hawthorne.co, and use my promo code to get 10% off your first purchase. Hawthorne.co. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, let's flip to the other side of the ball. Uh, you just also mentioned how great you know Pete Carroll's been with secondaries. Secondary hasn't been that good in the post uh, Legion of Boom era uh, for several reasons. Um, plug another one of your pieces. We're just plugging all Doug pieces today, guys. That's just how it's gonna. It's gonna. It's gonna <laughs> it's work. The Doug plug show. Yes, oh, Doug plug. That's the that's, title. That's good. That's good. Um, you you wrote a piece about the best man coverage cornerbacks. Uh, in in the league right now, and it was fast. There's a fascinating Seahawk. Well, there's two Seahawk names on there: Quentin Dunbar, yeah, the and, new and Seahawk. Yeah, the team that plays man coverage. I think they played man. I'm gonna look it up. Uh, go ahead, and I'll look up how much they played man because it wasn't much. Um, two two Seahawk names on there. Quentin Dunbar is one of them. The new Seahawk. The other name is fascinating, and he cracks the top five, and it's Trey Flowers. And yep. I, what? Actually, just go into that. He he. The spoiler. He, it's he's number four. Um, on the list, I think it's the top eleven. If I have that right, Trey checks in at four. What did you uh-huh. see from Trey 
Because right now he's like public enemy number like at least three, you know, after his performance against Green Bay in the playoffs, and rightfully so because he looked bad. Um, but he, yeah. I think he was solid otherwise, and at least in the regular season, wasn't great against Philly in the playoffs either. But what did you see from Trey in man coverage to get him that high on your list when a lot of people in Seattle want him benched? Well, first of all, if you and I have a subscription to Sports Info Solutions, and you can with with their database, you can get cornerback you can get stats for any defensive back uh, coverage stats for any DB um, in different coverages cover one cover two cover three and you can do multiples so I thought oh that's cool I'll do you know okay man coverage so I'll do zero one two man such etc um, and it surprised me that Trey Flowers was up as high as he was but first of all the Seahawks played man coverage 19% of the time that was 31st in the league they played zone 66% of the time. That was third in the league. Chargers, um, led by Gus Bradley, led the NFL with 75% zone. So if you're looking for instances in which Flowers dominates in man coverage, you really have to look for it. And I really did. I just typed in T Flowers in game pass and I went through his whole season. And, you know, if you go back to Richard Sherman's, even at, even at Sherman's peak, and I would argue that he still is at his peak, um, his one kryptonite as a long, rangy, aggressive cornerback is, I don't want to say shorter receivers, but quicker receivers who will fake him out, will run double moves. If he doesn't read the move and a guy zigs when he should zag, it takes Sherman just a half tick to adapt, whereas a Stephon Gilmore or Trudavious White, a guy you know built a little lower to the ground, it doesn't take that extra millisecond for everything to sort of move right. That's kind of always been Sherm's one kryptonite. I would say that Flowers is kind of the same way as far as build. And he's certainly not as developed, uh, you know, field acumen that, that Sherm did. Because Sherm is a white elephant. He's, he's just rare uh, above the neck. Not that Trey Flowers can't be. I don't, I, I wouldn't know him to say. But... When you watch him play man, I mean, you think about the attributes that man coverage cornerbacks must have. Uh, you have to be fearless because a lot of times you're not going to have anything behind you. So you have to have the trail speed and the bail speed to move with any receiver through any route. Could be, you know, could be sluggo, could be seam, could be post, could be anything. Um, you have to make the boundary your friend. Um, Shrim told me that once. Make the boundary your friend. Well, when you watch Trey Flowers in man coverage, he is very aggressive. He has very quick feet. So he can he can play, and match coverage also factors into this, which is kind of, you know, half half your route is man, half your route is zone. That's a different thing. Um, but when you watch him strictly as a man cornerback, he does have the aggressiveness and the recovery speed and the, what I would call angular movement to stay with receivers and just shut them down. Um so I think it was either the Dunbar or the Flowers piece. I kind of exerted the Seahawks. You know, you got two of the best man cornerbacks in the NFL. You don't want to play more man. Just a thought. <laughs> Not that I'm telling anyone what to do. Those guys have forgotten more about football than I'll ever know. But the stats say you might want to give it a shot. You know, it's a, it was not only surprising to see Trey on the list there, but it was surprising to not see, you know, I can get can we call him Pro Bowl corner? Yeah, he made it. This is an alternate Pro Bowl cornerback, yeah. Shaq Shaq Griffin. So how 
kind of where do you where do you fall? You mentioned Trey and Quentin are so good at at, at man. Where does kind of Shaq fit in the in the quarterback tiers there? I think you know. I think overall, I think he's a better zone quarterback than, he's, than he is man. He's smooth. He's just smooth. He's butter. Um, I would say top twenty. He didn't make. I'm, I'm working on the top eleven zone cornerbacks for tomorrow. Um, Shaq didn't make either list. I would say he's he would have been about fifteenth. Um, very good player. I don't know that he at this point excels. Like, does he shoot himself up to the top three in any category based on stats for tape? I would struggle with that. Um, the thing about Quentin Dunbar, and I want to get to that because when and I. I had been watching, you know, I, I, I write stat pieces every week in season and I go through a pro, pro football focuses database and I'm noticing week after week, like, J.C. Jackson of the Patriots was holding opposing quarterbacks to like a 12.6 uh, opponent passer rating. Just preposterous. And the two guys after him were consistently Richard Sherman and Quentin Dunbar. I think halfway through the season, I don't have it in front of you, it was like 37.6 opponent passer rating. Sherman Dunbar were tied after the season. And at the end of the season, they were pretty much still tied. And then the Redskins, or sorry, the Washington football team traded him for a fifth-round pick, and I thought, wow, what am I missing here? And then I went and watched his tape. My conclusion was, in both cases, that John Snyder is just really exceptional at taking advantage of stupid teams. Um, three cornerbacks made both my top man and my top zone cornerback uh, list. Stephon Gilmore, best cornerback in the NFL. Tredavious White, second best cornerback in the NFL. And who else? That'd be Quentin Dunbar. So he, he is that good. Um, he was, and he, and he was in a, the Redskins now, by the way, with Jason, they have five first round draft picks on their defensive line and they have like no cornerbacks. It's hilarious. <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's like they're, it's like it's 1963 in there, which, and more than one way for the Washington football team, unfortunately. Oh, boy. Zing. Um, but Quinn Dunbar, Quinn Dunbar has the ability, has the potential, and I don't have any idea about the off-field stuff. I have no clue. I don't even want to opine on that. I, I want to stay the heck away from that. If he's on the field, he has the potential to be one of the best cornerbacks in the NFL. So, ostensibly, you have a guy who could play at a Tredavious White level, I believe. Um, and by the way, his coaches in Washington were like, this guy reads everything so well. I don't know if you read the piece I did on, on him and Diggs, but you know they were just raving about him, so of course they traded him for nothing. <laughs> and he's like a minimal cap hit, too. It's just, it's like, it's, it's Mariner-esque. Um, but they've got, you know, with, with Diggs, with Flowers, with, um, you know, They've, they've got enough to have, especially, and we also have to talk about this, their commitment to base defense, speaking of 1963, the Seahawks led the NFL with a 67% base defense rate. They played base, not nickel, not dime, four cornerbacks, four defensive backs on the field, 67% of the time. The Arizona Cardinals were second at 37%. Yeah. That is Seattle's commitment to base defense. Then they go and take a linebacker in the first round. So it's not like, and they don't really have any nickel corners. So this is what they're going with. So it's interesting. 
you know, what does Flowers do? Does Dunbar switch inside? And he has the, you know, the ability to do that. Um, does Griffin play some slot? And I think he can be very good at that because he's a very practiced, technical corner. Uh, it, it's interesting, but, you know, again, we have to, it's the big proviso, does Dunbar hit the field? And again, I don't want to opine on, on the, the legal stuff because I don't know. But I'm telling you, uh, go to Game Pass. I think it's still free. Type in Q Dunbar and just watch. He's something else. He is, he is in my mind, one of the top ten. I did a thing for Athlon's NFL Preview Magazine and led me to rate like the top 30 at every position. And I wrote up the top ten. And I think I had Dunbar overall like seventh or eighth Ooh, among wow. all cornerbacks in the NFL. He's that good. He really is. So hopefully he'll be able to show it on the field. I think looking at the Seahawks' DB room, especially with Trey Flowers, you have Shaquille Griffin, and the addition of Quentin Dunbar. That's a pretty dynamic trio right there. How would you get all those guys on the field together? Well, that's the question. Um, you know, do you do you run a cornerback version of Big Nickel, where you have three corners and one safety? They could do that. Um, they could run you know, different iterations of can't Pete, listen, if you're listening to this podcast, iterations of man coverage, trust <laughs> me. Um, you know, they, they could, they could mess with that a little bit. Um, certainly they want Diggs on the field. Diggs in his time with Detroit had a history as kind of a deep slot defender. But again, you have a team that put, only four defensive backs on the field 67% of the time. 30% more than any other team. So was that, and we don't know this yet, was that a byproduct of their relatively weak defensive back group when the 2019 season started? And there's no question in the first half of the season. I mean, Quandary Diggs saved that season for them. Without Diggs, they don't go to the playoffs because you guys remember what that mess looked like. Um, so did Pete say, okay, it's genius of desperation time. I'm just going to play base and it's going to be 1985. And here we go. Um, if they drop it to like 30, um, if it were me, I would put flowers and Dunbar outside and I'd make Shaq the nickel guy. Cause I, I think he has that. I think he would be among the three, the best pure nickel slash dime cornerback. There's because a... you have to, you know, you have to have really just pristine feet, great field awareness. You can't make a mistake. I would no sooner put. I mean, Trey Flowers is a born outside cornerback. You don't want him in slot because it's it's again that recovery thing. Um, and if you want to compare him to Sherm as far as body type, I don't think Sherm ever liked the slot. I don't think that was ever his deal, and or should it have been because he's one of the best outside cornerbacks of all time. Um, but I go Flowers and Dunbar outside and uh, Shaq inside and play about 30 40% man coverage because that's what their defensive backs do the best. The big question is the def- defensive line because if you don't have any pressure on the opposing quarterback, it doesn't matter who you have covering wide receivers because ultimately the receivers are having all the time in the world to do double moves, get downfield. Clowney is holding out, and at this point, I don't know when he's ever going to sign or who he's going to sign with. Do you think Clowney is deserving of a mega deal? Granted, he didn't finish the season healthy. He was banged up. He only had three sacks. But what he created for the Seahawks defense, is that worth a mega deal with Seattle or another team? 
Well, yeah, ton of factors there. That that San Francisco game, the first San Francisco game, um, I have rarely seen one defensive player take over a game like that. Mm. That was like okay because he was a spinner in Houston. He was like all over the place and. Pete and his guys did the smart thing. Well, we're just going to, you know, put you on the edge and let you put your hand on the ground and just let you demolish everybody. And that's when he was healthy. He didn't have the core injury. That's what he did. As far as whether he's worth, I mean, I I, I struggle to get into questions of quote-unquote worth. Um, I can tell you that if he wants 15, 16, 17 million a year and the Seahawks have about 13 million in cap room, do you want a backloaded deal with a guy who's already been in the league that long? I think... The smart, I think the the advantaged team with Clowney will be the one with the cap space to front load it, to go full metal Garoppolo and just you know load as much into the first year as possible, and then you know, see how it goes. Um, because Clowney has been dinged up and he has been inconsistent, and schematically, it's not always been favorable for him. Um, I think if he were to return to Seattle in this particular. Uh, vision, I think he'd be great as long as he's healthy, but there's a lot of ifs there. And that's a lot of money. And, you know, Seattle has never, uh, with Carolyn Schneider, to my recollection, you guys would know this better than me, I don't think they've ever given any of their edge guys, like, huge, like, major top five money. Um, Even when Michael Bennett was playing, I mean... When Michael was at his peak, he was the equivalent of J.J. Watt or Aaron Donald as an inside-outside defender. He was, you know, just astonishing. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the um, the 2014 Super Bowl highlights where Dave Dignelliamo, the um, Patriots offensive line coach at the time, <laughs> said, we can't, we got to block 72, we can't block 72. Well, I talked to him, Gooch is his nickname, and I'll just call him that because I can't pronounce his last name. Um, and I said, what do you think of Michael Bennett? And he paused, <sighs> big sigh. And he looked at me and he said, he's Reggie White. Mm. Seriously. So if they weren't going to give Michael Bennett major dollars, I don't know. Um, I think he signed somewhere else. I think it could be, I think Tennessee. Tennessee, you know, because I, I don't know, the, the, the Seahawks, because here's another question. Do the Seahawks believe they're one good edge rusher away from the Super Bowl? I think the Titans think they're one good edge rusher away from the Super Bowl, and they might be right, because that was the one thing they really, Harold Landry was good, but they didn't really have consistent pressure. Um, and now with, with uh, DMPs retiring, you know, they got, it might not be as good overall schematically, I don't know, but... You get clowny when you think you're when you think you're him away from the Super Bowl. I don't know if the Seahawks believe that at this point. Are they still in the middle of a rebuild? Do they think we get Bruce Irvin? We hope for Collier, maybe one of our draft picks this year um, catches fire. I I am of the belief that Daryl Taylor is their best draft pick in 2020. I think he has the most potential. Um, or me, unless I truly believe, and I'm Pete and John, like, we are a pass rusher away at this point from the Super Bowl. That's when you sign Clowney. I'm not sure they think that. You know, let's, let's, that's a perfect, man, Doug's out here doing the segues for us, too. He's providing the content. Doing the segues, taking digs at the Mariners. I caught that, Doug. Um, uh, it's a uh, oh, it's I, can, a, I, I can do that all day. <laughs> <laughs> no, every, every everyone can, man. It's uh, dark times. Uh, but you know, let's talk about twenty twenty draft class uh, here to kind of close close things out. 
Uh, they took Jordan Brooks with their first pick, which you just mentioned, Daryl Taylor. Uh, and he's a lot of people's favorite pick from the Seahawks uh, 2020 Hall. Why is he your favorite pick? It's interesting, and I, I haven't been able to ask college coaches about this, but I've asked pro coaches about this. Why do so many, not just edge rushers, but defensive linemen, why do so many defensive linemen come into the NFL with really, really rudimentary hand technique? And it's one of the reasons, I believe, with all his stuff, Frank Clark was so attractive to Seattle because Frank had he had he was very good with his hand movement, you know, swipe over, swim, rip, whatever. Um, I watched Daryl Taylor, and I see what I see in ninety percent of college edge rushers. He's got a bull rush. Most of these guys have one move. A lot of times, it's just bull. Um, you get your hand in the, the offensive lineman's chest, and you're strong enough to push him back, and then you just run around him. And the rest of the time, he would just kind of wrestle and stand there. You give him two or three good hand moves, and I think you could see a Cliff Averill-type impact. I don't think he's as strong or as quick off the snap as Bennett, but he, in the, in the same way I called Griffin smooth, I thought that Averill was always smooth. He was just, you know, he didn't necessarily look fast, but he was fast because he just, he just knew what to do. Um, yeah, I think I, Taylor, <laughs> and because of that, he may be a guy who gets, you know, four sacks and 25 hurries in his first season, and then in 2021, bang, it's 11 sacks and 50 hurries, and where did this guy come from? But Ooh. I think, you know, I, I think he could be something else. Jordan Brooks, you know, and I, I watched the tape at the time, and I didn't get it. I watched the tape in preparation for this podcast this morning, and I went back and read Pete and John's Pete and John's quotes about how he played outside in 2019, played inside in 2020, or 20, played outside in 19, played inside in, in 19. I have to apologize. This year already seems like 12 years, so I get a little <laughs> confused. Um, and I agree with that assessment. Um, what I saw from him was because when you say outside, like he was in coverage. The automatic assumption now, the way linebackers come out of school, is, oh, is he an Isaiah Simmons, or is he a Patrick Queen, or is he something like that? And the answer is no. He is, a, he can spy. He can cover the flat. If you're going to ask him to cover a fast tight end or a slot receiver 25 yards upfield, uh, I don't think so. So then they move in into kind of a micro in 2019, and if you want to go watch his game against Oklahoma and the number of long incorrect gaps he took. Um, he's a very aggressive guy to the line. Um, I'm not entirely sure he always knows where he's going. I don't know whether it's readability or whether the gap is predetermined. Like, you hit two no matter what. I don't care where that guy's going. And if that's the case, if his coaches are telling him to blindly hit a gap, then this is not on him. And Because I, I really struggle to denigrate players when I don't know what their coaches are asking them to do or not. But there's a lot of just, boy, you're not where you're not where you're obviously supposed to be. And it happens a lot. Now, when I watched Bobby Wagner tape after they took him, I saw the very model of a modern linebacker. He was covering both field 20 yards back in Tampa to sideline to sideline. And it was obvious. Um, I thought, you know, a little light in the pants because it was 2012. Now he's a heavyweight. 
back then, not so much, but you know what I mean. Um, Jordan Brooks, I think, is a project. And when you take a, what is considered a fungible position in a league that plays 70% nickel and 30% dime, when you take a fungible position in the first round and he's a project, you are committing to the defense you had before, which is, again, 60%, 67% based. Um, you know, you are making commitment to this, and this guy is a project. It's not going to happen overnight. So that one I'm not so sure about. I, I don't know if that one's going to come out. The Seahawks ended their 2019 campaign with just 28 sacks as a unit, and Rasheem Green, defensive end, had four of those sacks out of the 28. Do you think the addition of Daryl Taylor can push this number to perhaps 35, 33 sacks this season, as, of course, you're expecting Rasheem Green to get better? You're expecting a lot of these guys to step up, Benson Mayoa. What do you see this sack total looking like for this 2020 campaign? Well, I'm team Puna, and I think Puna's going to get 25 of those sacks. Let's go, <laughs> Puna! Love it, Puna. I am. I was. I wrote a thing about him before he was drafted. Um, he wasn't. He wasn't really. He didn't talk a lot. I got it. Talked to his agents. I'm like, why is this Big Twelve defensive player of the year? He wasn't right in the combine. What the hell? Um, and then I watched his tape, and I'm like, okay, really? What the hell? This guy's a monster. And that was one of those situations where they asked him to play out of place, and you know kind of a disaster, but um, my assessment of Daryl Taylor, like I said, I think because he's going to he's going to have to develop other moves, you're not going to get by with just a bull rush. He is probably only going to play outside. And that's interesting because ever since Bennett, Pete has wanted guys to play both. And I think that's why they took Rasheem Green. I think it's why they took Elgin Collins. Um, it's very hard to find people who can do both. Pro, pro football focus, Daryl Taylor played five snaps um, inside the tackle last year. So that's probably not going to happen, although at 6'4", 267, he could. Um, and I think, again, you have to put those moves together or run stunts and, and games and things like that. Um, with that, you know, he's more of an athlete than a, an NFL learned defensive end at this point, maybe it's four sacks, maybe it's 25 hurries, and then maybe in 2021 he just blows up. But he has the potential to do that. Wow. So the Seahawks, again, missed on their first pick and got it right on day two or three. Well, I mean, that sounds Seahawky. I mean, that's, that's, that's the way it is. You know, if, if they ever drafted a guy in the first round that I had heard of or watched tape <laughs> on, or what, I, w- I wouldn't know what to do with myself. No, I, w- I wouldn't if they, either. If they ever took a guy in the first round who wasn't a fifth-round prospect, I-, I wouldn't know what to do. Yeah, it's uh, – who was the last first-round pick that the Seahawks got to sign a second deal? Was it Earl? It can't be Earl, right? Uh, I think it was Earl. I think it is, yeah. Oh, my God. That's not – Yeah. That's not good. Earl was drafted in 2010. Good. Oh, boy. And that makes you wonder because that's really the only – outside of Dwayne Brown with the average year in the draft. That was their one good – left tackle in Okung, and in my opinion, the best cover safety of this generation in Earl. So they got not only the first-round pick right, they got two first-round picks right. So what was in the Wheaties or not in the Wheaties then that changed? That that would be a good story. Yeah, no, that whole 2010 draft is good, man. They got Cam in there. You guys do a lot of long form. Talk to the cooks over at the VMAC and be like, okay, what was in the Kool-Aid before and what changed in 2011? 
Yeah, that's a that's a good one. I don't know. That, that 2010 draft, yeah, there was some Golden Tate's in that draft. I think he's a yep. second round, second round pick. Cam Cam Chancellor in the fifth. The whole the whole weekend was good. Uh, that was a great draft. Well, I will say, I mean, there there are a couple of reasons people attribute to the Seahawks' early success with Pete Egon. <laughs> One is Scott McGowan, and Scott is personnel guy of his generation, so I don't argue with that. Um, Scott now does a lot of things for a lot of teams. But and, and Richard Sherman was one of these guys. Percy Harvin, I know, was one of these guys. Um, all the guys that Pete had tried to recruit to USC were coming into the NFL. So those first few years, Pete had an enormous advantage that NFL coaches didn't. And I think he had it a little bit when Dan Quinn went down to Florida and then came back. But, you know, if, if we're wondering why the drafts have not been as spectacular of late. Um, I think that's another reason. It's kind of interesting. No, that is. And he, yeah, he was, he was, he was pulling out guys. He tried to recruit Brandon Brown is one of those guys too. He tried to recruit Brandon to SC. Didn't work out. Brandon goes to the PAC 10 and all that other stuff goes to Oregon state, but then boom, come pluck him out of Canada. And he, uh, makes the pro bowl his first year. And <laughs> what do you know? Leads the league in passes you know? defense in 2011. I'm pretty sure. Uh, yeah, great, yeah. great year. Um, Doug, uh, one more plug. Uh, you meant you kind of hinted at it. You're writing another. You did the top 11 guys for that do man coverage uh, cornerbacks. And by the time you guys listen to this podcast now, top 11 guys in zone coverage will be out uh, up down, up on Touchdown Wire uh, USA Today. Please, please, please go check it out. I read a bunch of Doug stuff when I just want to nerd out uh, on football and just get into the weeds of like all the advanced numbers and tape and and all that. Because I got to embrace my inner nerd uh, football guy. Uh, every once in a while. I'll say know. this. I'll say two things about the zone uh, article. Quinton's number seven. You will not believe who number three is. You could guess a hundred different guys. You would never get who number three is. Oh, that's kind of want to take a shot at it, but now I'm going to wait. <laughs> it, it's number four is Stephon Gilmore. Number two is Sherm. Number one is Tredavious White. You will never guess who number three is. When you read this tomorrow, you will not believe who number three is. Thank you, Doug. That's uh, Doug for our rights for USA Today. Just great, great work. Doug, we appreciate you jumping on uh, to talk with us. Uh, please, guys, go check out everything Doug writes. Follow him on Twitter. I know he's not verified anymore, but give him the, <laughs> give him the follow. Anyway, what's your tag, Doug, on Twitter? NFL underscore Doug Farrar, F-A-R-R-A-R. Yeah, Twitter machine, please. Go <laughs> I just feel like a person there. Oh, man, yeah. Thank you. Thank you again. Make sure you guys uh, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, please. Remember, we're on Spotify, we're on The Athletic. We're on everywhere, man. We appreciate you guys listening to the Seahawks Man to Man podcast. Uh, once again, shout out to our, our, our special guest uh, for blessing us with the insight. Uh, this is the Doug Plug uh, episode. I love the title for that. Uh, on that note, we'll see you guys later. We're out. Everything was a gift from a time to your